Hey, welcome to night school. It's Tuesday. It's Tuesday. It's funny, too, because over the weekend, my lifelong best friend visited. Hadn't seen him in a very long time, and he made it to this area. He lives in California now, and he made it up here with his uh, new girlfriend. And we went to Tumwater, Washington, which is, it turns out, the first pioneering settlement in this part of the country, in Washington State at least. I love Tumwater. Olympia is basically three cities. They're ba- it's basically three cities combined, and it's not a particularly big area, but it's there's basically three towns that run right into each other, and one of those is Tumwater, where they originally manufactured Olympia beer, and, and one of the reasons my friend wanted to go there is there's ruins. The ruins of the old brewery are there, and he wanted to check them out a little bit. But his girlfriend, who had never been to this part of the country, she's, I think, only really lived in L.A., commented on just how quiet things are around here. And she was like, it feels like it was a Saturday afternoon, very nice day. And she just commented that it feels like Tuesday. And so the joke kind of became that this is the land of Tuesday. Doesn't matter what day of the week it is, it's the land of Tuesday. But Thursday is still Thursday. Every other day is Tuesday. Thursday is still Thursday, because I'm not letting go of Thursday. If you know me and you know this show, Thursday is the power day, but every other day is Tuesday, because we are in the land of Tuesday. But you can still have Thursdays in the land of Tuesday. Ask the scientists about that one, how you can still have Thursday in the land of Tuesday. And that gets into my next point, which is there was a study... I always love it when a new study comes out. Scientists show that... Scientists say... And I do love the scientific process in its own right, but just this... The audacity of science always gets me, and I obviously talk about it a lot, but sometimes it's good to give a concrete example of something that's been in the news. Something that's been in the news... And an example of that was recently a study came out that shows that crows have consciousness. And one article I read said something to the effect of, like, crows can experience reflective thought. And I read that and I said, oh, so what every culture already intuitively knew for eons has been proven. Crows, this symbol... Crows have been used as a symbol. They've been used in storytelling by all kinds of quote-unquote primitive people. It's been well understood. I mean, even just if you have crows around you, if you just pay attention to crows, you can kind of figure it out. You can kind of figure out that there's something going on. Whether you want to use a placeholder word like consciousness whether you want to say they reflect on their thoughts, they're capable of reflecting on their thoughts. It doesn't matter how you say it or how you even think about it. You, in fact, don't even need to think about it. You just know it if you see, if you see crows operate. And, I mean, the, crows play a large role in Native American storytelling, and the role they play is often one of consciousness, symbolic reflection, They often embody that very thing science discovered. Science discovered that crows have consciousness. 
human beings have long, you know, thought about crows in kind of a, you know, they've kind of related to crows in a strange way, and humans relate to things through consciousness, which is why when we have pets, one of the things that we like to talk about the most with other people is how our pets do things that are human-like. Like, oh, he looks like such a human. I mean, I say that to my friends. My friends were visiting, and they'd never met Batty, and I I was describing to them how, like, oh, when his ears are down and tucked back, how his face looks more human. Like, his face looks like a little man's face to me. And I was telling them how he knows words. And so it goes back to the episode I did about God and, you know, why we relate to the world through anthropomorphic animals in cartoons and, you know, in any number of different ways, and shamanism, just all these different ways, and how we relate to the idea of God by seeing him as a man, and me even just saying him. But it's like we understand the idea of God better by visualizing God as a man. We relate to God in the same way we relate to animals. We see something human in him in the same way we see something human in our pets, in the same way we see something human in crows. And when we are not able to see something human or human-like in another creature, we're far less likely to relate to it, to develop a relationship. So... You know, so there's there's something obvious and intuitive about understanding the world by com- by through comparison, through relation. And people have long related on some level to crows, not not in the way like when you read like Native American stories. Not that I spend my time doing that, but if you grow up in this part of the country, you will you, in school. You're exposed to that. You just will inevitably run into it. I mean, because that was something my friend's girlfriend noticed right away in this area is there's images of salmon everywhere, and they're almost always done in a Native American style. It's almost always a Native American style of art. You can't really go around this area for... You can barely go down the block without seeing some sort of Native American art on something, and it typically shows a salmon so if you, I don't know what the rest of the country's like, I don't know what Kansas is like, I don't know what New York's like, but I can tell you that if you grew up in the Pacific Northwest, specifically Western Washington State, you will have heard a lot of little, you know, Native American stories. You'll just have been exposed to that, whether you're interested in it or not. And that's, a, that's cool. It's cool that you learn the, the pagan lore of the land in which you live. I think it's good, you know, even though I'm not particularly interested in it, I'm not disinterested in it either. Like, I was never the kid who was sitting there, like, loving... You know, I don't like children's books. And so I don't necessarily like these... The stories of, like, Native American cosmology, like the sun and moon were created from the crow's eyes which I've never heard that one. But you, it's things like that. Like, those things never appealed to me, but I'm also glad to have heard them because I can relate them to my anti-science rants where I'm like, the scientists have just figured out what everybody's already known, that there's something going on with crows. Um, but, uh, 
was I going to say about that? I, I don't know. I don't think I had anything more to say about like seeing salmon, seeing that. I don't think I had anything more to say about that. But going back to just the original point with the crows, like I mean, just through my own experience as a human being, you see crows do things that raise an eyebrow, and they're things that make you that you relate to. I mean, going back to that, that's kind of like what I wanted to get into, is just that we relate to the world by seeing other things on our own terms. And when we can't see the humanity in something inhuman, we don't really want to even think about it. We kind of put it out of our mind. It seems alien to us, even though it's just as natural to our earth as anything else, like a worm. Like, we don't relate to worms, typically. Yet, you know, you know, we don't hate worms necessarily. Some people do. But, I mean, people hate things. The less human something looks or the less human something, thi- uh, something seems, the more likely someone is to not like it or feel grossed out by it. You think about insects and things like that that do seem alien, even though they're just as much a part of our natural world as anything else, as your dog, as monkeys, as crows. Have you heard the story about the dog, the monkey, and the crow, and how they created the earth? Uh, (laughs) Create your own pagan cosmology, your own pagan creation story. But it is something we do, and we do it at the largest level with God. I mean, we do it with ghosts, even though we have no real reason. I mean, I've seen some weird stuff. I'm not a ghost guy. I'm not a ghost guy. But I have seen some strange things. I think I've told the story on here about how my sister and I both, when I was a kid, screamed at my mom to stop the car because we saw a deer in the middle of the road. And, and it was kind of a ghostly-looking deer. And it turned out there was nothing. We were driving in the middle of a, a dark, tree-lined road. And we both saw it at the same exact time and screamed, stop. And then when my mom stopped, there was nothing. The deer didn't quickly dart into the woods. We both saw this deer vividly. But it wasn't there. And uh, but you think about you know most you know most of our our visual idea of what of of supernatural entities is going to be in the form of either a human or an animal because we can relate to it that way. Even though we have no reason to think that supernatural entities necessarily take the shape of a human or animal. Like, even though we have experiences like the deer that I saw, or one time, you know, my friend Nick, the same one who visited me last weekend, we were walking near the railroad tracks in our hometown, and we both saw a guy walking toward us down this, there's a pair, a pair, a pair of stairs, a set of stairs, walk, you know, it leads down to the railroad tracks from these woods, and very few people are over there at night. And we both saw a clear silhouette of a guy in the moonlight walking down the stairs toward us. And we sort of darted off to the side and hid in a bush and watched that exact spot. But there was no guy. Like a guy didn't dart out of the way, but we both saw a clear silhouette. And in that particular spot, a guy, the older brother of a classmate, had hanged himself. Not in that exact spot where we saw the silhouette, but right near there. He had hanged himself years earlier. Did we see his ghost? I don't know. We saw. We both saw a silhouette of a man walking, and then it wasn't there. Was it a ghost? I don't know. 
Was it a, a guy who's very, was it a real man who's just very quick? Like maybe he saw us and darted into the bushes. You know, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not out to prove anything to anybody. I don't even, I'm not even out to prove it to myself. But point being, we tend to see even supernatural entities in forms that we can relate to. And yeah, we can think of, you know, a mist. Oh, the ghost appeared to me as just like a gas floating through the air, a mist, a light haze. You know, we can think of things in more atmospheric terms like that, but when you think of a ghost story, you think of it taking a human shape because that's how we relate to the world. So naturally, we see that in animals. And, you know, with crows in particular growing up, you know, I, I just noticed crows doing things. I mean, I heard a guy speak once, a naturalist, about a crow led him to, I believe it was honey. And it's probably a Native American story about that. Maybe I'm confusing some naturalist's story from his own experience with Native American lore. And maybe I'm confusing a crow with a raven. Maybe I'm just confused. But either way, corvid. Because, I mean, ravens, I'm sure ravens have consciousness too. If crows have consciousness, we know ravens do. Quote me on that. But there's a story about a corvid leading a man to honey so that the corvid could get it because it couldn't get its beak inside the tree to get the honey. So the man, it would lead the man to this thing so that it too could enjoy it. It was a trade-off. It's like, I'm going to show you how to get the honey so that you can give me some. And just my own experience seeing... When I first moved to the Olympia area, there was a big undeveloped lot. It's an area where there are now houses, but they had cleared off the lot, so it was just dirt. It was just mud for a long time. It was probably around the time that the housing boom crashed, and so you had a bunch of undeveloped lots in this area where they hadn't built houses, they hadn't built subdevelopments of houses. And I was near my house and I looked up and there were just crows from all different directions. It wasn't just one giant flock of crows coming from one place. It was crows coming from all over in large groups, small groups, individual crows. And they were all heading to the same place and making so much noise. And I was like, I wonder what's going on. I've never seen so many crows. I don't want to say the sky was black with crows, but there was a lot of there were a lot of black flying shapes in the sky. And I ended up going down maybe about a a block and a half away, and I ended up passing by this empty lot that had been undeveloped. It was just mud, dirt, and they were congregating there. It looked like a convention. And they didn't seem to be eating. They were just all congregating there. It was like the meeting of the crows, which is the name of my pagan creation story. The meeting of the crows. I'm going to tell you about the meeting of the crows after I tell you about the monkey, the dog, and the crow creation, pagan creation story. No, but I saw all these crows congregating, and I was like, they're having a meeting of some kind. And stragglers continued to come in, just like a human meeting. There were people who were late. There were late crows. Have you heard of the late, have you heard of my band, the late crows? People always accuse us of ripping off the counting crows. But we're different. We're the late crows. And we're named after the time that I saw a group of crows meeting in a field. (laughs) And some were late to the meeting. No, but there were stragglers. And it fascinated me because I was just like, wow, they're having a meeting. 
while like the skeptic in you could say like, oh, there's probably worms in the dirt there. They're probably looking for worms. They're probably looking for worms. They're probably looking for worms. Things I don't I don't relate to worms. They're probably trying to find worms in all that mud, in that big undeveloped field of dirt. Maybe they were. I didn't see them doing that, though. They just all seemed to be making noise and congregating in the same spot, a huge amount of them. I would say, realistically, there were a thousand crows there. I'm not even exaggerating. There were a thousand crows there. I counted them one by one. But it just made me think. I was like, why are they meeting? Because these are different flocks of crows. And I don't know what the divisions are like. Like, I don't know if crows stay with the same flock all the time. I don't know. I mean, a lot of times you see them by themselves. I'm sure that, and that's one thing the scientists could tell us, is whether crows hang out in the same flocks or whatever. But it's also something we could just, if you pay enough attention, you might figure it out. Uh, But, uh, you know, another thing too is I saw crows... I was walking a few years ago, and I found a dead crow just lying flat on its back. And there were all these crows on the telephone wire up above it, making all this noise, and clearly looking down at the dead crow. And I had this distinct feeling, because I do relate to the world through myself as a human, and I relate to the world through the customs that we you know, participate in as humans. And I was like, oh, I just walked into a crow funeral. I'm like a stranger who wandered into the wrong funeral, a funeral where I don't belong. But I I was walking on the sidewalk, and this crow was right down by my feet, and I looked up, and yeah, there were all these crows just lined up perfectly, looking down at the dead crow, making all of this noise. And I actually made video of it. I recorded a little video of it with my phone because I found it so interesting that I got the distinct feeling that this was something like a funeral. It's a bunch of crows acknowledging the death of... Of another crow. And then drunk crows. Some years back, I, I heard this racket on my roof. I thought I thought something was going on. I thought a large animal was on my roof, or a human even. There was all this noise. And I didn't know what it was. And I mean, I, you, it's hard to see at the very top of your own roof, even if you're even if you go outside, but I knew something was going on, and I could kind of tell it was birds. I could hear these flapping wings, and then I could hear crows. And then they flew to the next house where I could see the roof, and it was a bunch of drunk crows. And I've heard of that happening. You know, you you hear about birds getting drunk on berries, fermented berries. I don't know where they got the berries. I don't know what kind of berries they were. Just like I don't know what a drunk person's been drinking. But I, I they were clearly drunk. And I've since heard that they do this. And it was this group of drunk crows, and they were just, like, falling all over. They were they were just dancing around. They were playing with each other. They were chasing each other, which I don't think I've seen that before, crows chasing each other. I've seen them chase eagles. I've seen them chase hawks. But I've never seen them really chase each other that I can remember. But when they're drunk, they're messing around. They're fooling around. It was a bunch of crows fooling around drunk. And it really was like a group of humans coming home from a bar. Like, you know, if you live on a busy street that's on on people's way home from a bar, you know, you'll hear late at night on a Friday or Saturday a, a, a group of drunks singing, making noise. It was a lot like that. It was a lot like that same experience where I was like, geez, like, can't wait till these drunks are gone. But the crows were clearly enjoying their state of drunkenness. 
But yeah, it's, it's one of those things where there, there are these time-honored, intuitive things we understand about nature, about creatures, about ourselves. Because that's the amazing thing, too, is it's not just that we go, oh, science has discovered that crows have consciousness and experience reflective thought. It's also that we say that about ourselves. We've discovered that we do this thing that we've always understood about ourselves when we're not clouded, when we're not distracted, because that's a big part of it. I mean, it's like using your own body. I mean, it's something I've learned is, oh, I didn't really know how to use my body, for example. Like, I didn't know how to deliberately use a certain muscle. It's like someone teaching you how to lift. Like lifting a, a heavy box and being like, lift with your legs, not your back. You know, it's, it's something as simple as that. But even with like lifting weights, like, because I've injured myself over and over again, my wrists, my tendons, even with weights that aren't particularly heavy, just, you know, repetitive motion injury. You know, I, I've really, it's been trial by fire learning how to use my body and lift weights. But at some point I realized, oh, if I think about my biceps while I'm doing bicep curls, I'm more likely to use my biceps to do the lifting. Whereas if I'm just thinking about, like if I'm, if I'm doing this kind of reductionist thing where I'm like thinking about every little component or I'm just thinking about the goal of lifting that thing and nothing else, I'm going to end up using my wrists, I'm going to use my forearms, and I'm going to injure myself. But if I consciously think I'm lifting this with my biceps... My body adjusts to that, and I use my biceps to do the lifting, which is the whole darn point of doing bicep curls. And that's why people go to a physical trainer. I mean, I've figured everything out pretty much by myself, which is why I've had to, you know, make mistakes and hurt myself. But it's it's funny how you just are like, whoa, yeah, if I think about using that muscle while I'm doing that thing... And I pay attention to my form while I'm thinking about that. While I'm focusing on that part of my body, I'm going to use that part of my body. And you think about how strong we are as human beings, but how poor we are at managing our strength, at using our full strength. And that's been eye-opening to me with Batty, where sometimes if Batty's being defiant on a walk, I'm amazed at how strong he is. He's so small. You know, I always say he's the size of my foot if you put a head, legs, and tail on it. Yet he can give me a run for my money when it comes to trying, you know, if he leans a certain way, like if he's on his leash and he leans a certain way, if he wants to go, you know, piss on this tree over here and I want to keep going and he leans in that direction, if he gives me that resistance, I'm amazed at how strong he is. And it's because he has an understanding of his whole physical being, you know, he knows how to use his body he knows how to use his strength to to its maximum extent, you know, and that's something we as humans have to learn later, and even then we're lucky if we can do that. Even then we're lucky. So there are intuitive things, you know, there are intuitive things you come to learn, and, and what might be an epiphany to you is something that somebody else just intuitively understands. And uh, the issue with the cult of science is just, we tend to think, okay, we've basically manufactured an epiphany and we're going to tell you that it's a big deal. And at best, we'll acknowledge that it confirms something we assumed. But that assumption is is often a an understanding 
a time-honored understanding. And so the idea that we need to spend time and the amount of money, like that's what, that's what I think about, like the amount of money that probably went into figuring out that crows have consciousness. The amount of money that went into that. And not just the money that went into the study itself, but the money that went into publishing it. The money that went into it, that paid a journalist's salary to write an article about it. You think about that, the way that so many people were paid to let us know that something we already knew, that pagan people already knew, is true. It's always funny to me. You know, people talk about funds being misused. And it's just like, did we really need to pay somebody money to figure out that crows do that thing that we already knew they did? And so many studies are that way. Studies show that if you don't get physical exercise, you're more prone to depression. If you don't get physical exercise, you have a tendency to gain weight. Oh my God. Thank God we paid somebody to figure that out. God forbid you just, you know, share uh, intuitive knowledge. Not that science doesn't have its time and place. Not that medicine doesn't have its time and place. Of course it does. I'm not against these things. I'm not against the process. I'm against the way they're presented. But that is a funny thing about it, where there are so many things that are just intuitive that we... And and it's not that a system doesn't get developed around intuition. I mean, I think this relates to something that's... I I don't want to call it a pet peeve, because it doesn't actually bother me, but I've read a number of books about spirituality over the years, uh, be it Buddhism. Let's just use Buddhism as an example. And you'll read these Buddhist books that talk about meditation. They talk about these transcendental ideas... They talk about these very deep, ancient ideas, and they'll reference scripture. Scripture, I can't even say it. Scripture. I'm starting to talk like that just on, on its own. I don't even. Ha- I don't even. I, I have noticed that actually. I have noticed that sometimes I'll just say things in that voice without meaning to. Scripture. But you know, while they'll they'll reference scripture and these ancient ideas. They'll also spend a lot of time justifying these ideas in a scientific context. And they'll talk about, oh, they, they put these they hooked these monks up to a, a machine in a laboratory to study how the neurons on their brain in their brain fire when they're meditating. And we discovered that there are changes that take place. Changes take place in the neurons in a monk's brain when we hook them up to a machine in a laboratory. It's like duh. Duh. You spent money on that? You spent money to find out that meditation changes your brain activity? And you're interested in spirituality and Buddhism, and you think that you need to present that in a book in order to justify what you're doing? And, and you know, and that's the, the, that's the thing. It's the fashion of our time. I think that's what all this is, is that the fashion of our time is that things have to be justified or explained, opposed to described, in a scientific context, in order for people to accept them. Otherwise, they're pseudoscience. Otherwise, they're quaint, quaint pagan beliefs. Otherwise, they're crazy. Otherwise, oh, this is what schizophrenia, this is what schizophrenics think. Otherwise, that's how people see it. 
Meanwhile, I, I consider it a waste of money and time. And when I'm reading a book about a spiritual subject, it always kind of takes me out of the moment when they're like, and we hooked the monks up to a machine and found that something does change in their brain. Studies show. I even read a book by a monk. I read a, a kind of a new agey book. Not kind of. I mean, I read an extremely new agey book a little while back. And uh, one of the author's intentions was to, to, you know, explain some of these processes in scientific terms. And so she talked to these, she would go to these, meet with these people who are studying this, meet with this physicist who can explain, oh, here, here's how we explain synchronicity through quantum physics. And to me, this doesn't seem like the point. That's not the point. And if you want to spend your time, I'm not, I'm not going to take that away. I mean, there's a lot worse things you could do with your time and a lot worse things you could do as a human being than trying to explain synchronicity in the context of quantum physics, the science of the day. I, but I guess my interest in something like synchronicity, my experience with something like synchronicity, is just so far off from requiring, you know, it's so far removed from requiring some sort of justification in the context of this, the fashion of the day. And science is the fashion of the day for understanding the world. And that's, it, to some degree, that's unavoidable. Like if you want to publish a book, you might have to cater to that. Just like if you want to get a job in our world today, you have to dress a certain way. Like you can't dress like a medieval knight for most jobs, most jobs, not all jobs. But you can't dress like a medieval knight in 2021 and get a job. In 2025, I think that might be, that trend might be back. You might be dressing like a medieval knight at your insurance sales job. I don't know. But there is a fashion of the time in which you live and... Whether you like it or not, you have to follow that to some degree, even if you're a rebel. Even if you are a rebel like who dyes your hair blue and wears a leather jacket and ripped up jeans, a so-called rebel, you look like that, but all your beliefs somehow line up with modern corporations. That's interesting. You're an anti-capitalist who dresses like punks from 30 years ago. Meanwhile, you agree with all of these social justice statements that corporations are making. The world has finally caught up to you. The world is finally on your level. But yet you're still a rebel. But anyway, I'm just making a cheap shot there. Uh, point being, like even somebody who's rebelling by wearing ripped up jeans, a leather jacket, blue hair, Chances are they still embody the fashion of the time in some way, like just the fact that they're wearing jeans, just the fact that they're wearing a leather jacket that's cut a certain way. You know, they're not dressing like Shakespeare. You know, they're wearing clothes that still have the same cut, that have the same basic shape. You still have the same basic silhouette as everybody else who's alive today. So there is a fashion of the time in which you live that even rebels follow. And you can see that where if you do read New Agey books, which I, I've only read a couple, but you know books on the topic of spirituality, Buddhism, mysticism, if you read books about that, you'll find that books 
about that subject, those subjects from this day and age, do kind of try to fit the fashion of the time, which is why they will justify or try to explain things in scientific terms when it seems completely unnecessary to the actual subject they're covering. Like, since I began meditating three years ago, I've never once thought, like, I really need a way of explaining what's going on in my head right now. I really need a way of explaining, like, what's going on with me as I'm doing this. I really wish I knew what the scientists could find out about this. That's the last thing on my mind. That's actually why I'm meditating. Not really. It's not the, that's not the sole reason. But one of the reasons I meditate is to not be in that world of explanation and justification because so much of our lives revolve around that. To not be in that world of manufactured epiphanies. But meditation is still a world of description opposed to explanation because you experience your thoughts and you can describe your thoughts, but you don't need to analyze them. I mean, that's one of the things that people learn and teach in meditation is just that your thoughts come You shouldn't try to suppress all of your thoughts. Your good thoughts, your bad thoughts, your random thoughts that you don't feel anything about will come through you. And you can describe those thoughts to yourself if you need to. Like, that's a good thought or that's a bad thought. But you have no attachment to what that thought actually is. You have no need to explain that thought. You have no need to justify that thought. You have no need to even analyze that thought. I mean, you might inevitably do that because we are analytical people. Like crows, we're analytical like the crows. You heard. Uh, but it's interesting that meditation is this state of description. And sometimes you even transcend description. You know, when you get into a deep meditative state, you're even beyond description. You've heard of that phrase, beyond description. But meditation can take you there, and it's taken me there. And, But when you do experience thoughts... When you do reflect during meditation, it should be an experience of description rather than explanation or justification. So the idea of wanting to have somebody explain what's going on in me while I am in this state that can be beyond description just seems completely pointless. And why would I need that? Why would I want that? And I mean, I don't understand secular meditation anyway. Not that I'm orthodox, not that I, you know, the word secular is interesting because I've heard spiritual people describe themselves as secular because they don't belong to a certain religion. I use it more generally to refer to somebody who is more atheistic, to somebody who isn't particularly interested in what's beyond what we can see and touch. And science is an attempt to see and touch everything even the microscopic, even the macroscopic, if that's even a word. The micro and the macro. And, uh, you know, my approach to fitness is not unlike this, too, where, yeah, there are certain rules I follow. There, There's good knowledge, but I don't measure everything I eat. Like, I don't... I like to get a certain amount of protein because I know I need that to build and maintain muscles. I know what's healthy for me. I don't study diet. You know, I've, I've tried some different diets here and there, but I, there's just a basic knowledge of that we have of like what's good for you, what's not, what you need in order to do this, and I just follow that. I don't measure calories. Uh, 
Yeah, I don't measure out the grams of carbs I eat. I don't, I don't do that. I just have a general idea. And my body responds accordingly. Because to me, that would take the whole experience away. Like that would, the whole point for me of doing that is to do something that is beneficial to me and takes me in a direction I want to go physically. But I don't want it to be scientific. I want it to feel natural. And as I mentioned, like that's, there's a trial by fire to that where you injure yourself. You do stupid things. You're not doing things as efficiently as you could do them. And that's the risk that you run when you want to have a natural sort of fitness. But to me, it would take everything away if I measured everything out. I mean, there's some people who have a spreadsheet open all day, and they type in everything they eat, and it tells you how much of it to eat. And I'm just, I don't want to do that. I don't want a robot to tell me how to be fit. In the same way, I don't want scientific studies to tell me something I intuitively know, that crows have consciousness. <laughs> You know, it's similar to me. It all this all runs together for me. But uh, it's just yeah, I'll be reading a book, and it's like, oh, this is the fashion. The fashion of the day is that something has to be justified in the eyes of modern science, which is why a site like Wikipedia brands things as pseudoscience. And there aren't even anything beyond just my own interest in mysticism, my own experience. I wouldn't even say it's an interest. My own experience with mysticism. Beyond that, I'm not particularly interested in anything that's super pseudoscientific. Like, there's nothing that I'm trying to defend that has been branded pseudoscience. Yet it still bothers me, like, if you look at something on Wikipedia and in the first... In the intro paragraph, it says, this is a pseudoscience. It's like a warning. And you just go, why do you need to brand it that way? There's this idea that people are stupid. I mean, all this stuff comes from the idea that people are stupid. And if Wikipedia doesn't brand something, if it doesn't give it the scarlet letter P for pseudoscience in the intro paragraph, a stupid people might, a stupid person might spend their life savings trying to save their kid's life with some uh, hocus-pocus nonsense. Instead, you should give your money to a doctor or a scientist. <laughs> but I think, the, I think their own justification kind of comes from that place, where we have to make sure people know that this is a pseudoscience, or else they're stupidly going to accept it. They're stupidly going to fall into a trap. But it's the fashion of the day. The fashion of the day is to explain things in scientific terms. When science should be, I mean, the scientific process in its most austere beauty is just description. But we can see where science is heavily manipulated, because it can be, because everything can be. Everything we do, everything we've created. Because there's this myth that science is beyond humanity. There's this myth that Science is something inhuman that we participate in when it's a human-created process. And the fact that it's a process that can give us a greater understanding, that it can give us greater knowledge on the micro, macro, on, on whatever level you're on, the fact that it can give us greater knowledge of what's going on the fact that this process does 
allow us to do certain things doesn't change the fact that it's an incredibly biased system that we ourselves created. And within that, there are going to be countless blind spots. We see where we always look back and say, oh, look at what they thought then. Meanwhile, we don't think that about ourselves. I mean, it's very similar to the right side of history thing. The right side of science. That's what I'm going to start saying. I'm on the right side of science. I'm on the right side of science. You know, I mean, we're, we're about two days away from people saying that. We're pretty much already saying that with coronavi and everything escalating the, the scientific discussion. Are you on the right side of history and the right side of science? We're pretty much just going to have that phrase applied to like every subject in school. Are you on the right side of math? I'm on the right side of history. I'm on the right side of science. I'm on the right side of math. I'm on the right side of home ec. Are you on the right side of home ec? Are you on the right side of crows? I'm on the right side of crows. But, you know, there's this idea that, you know, do you want to be on the right side of science? And it's, you know, the future makes fools of every scientific belief. Yeah, some may remain consistent. Relatively few, though. And we always look back and we're like, oh, isn't it funny what they once thought? Isn't it funny what scientists back then think? It's a good thing our scientists today know everything. It's a good thing our scientists today just know everything. And they're not going to be proven wrong. It's a good thing that... Today's citizens are morally and ethically perfect. It's a great thing they're all on the right side of history. You know, because that's totally what we think. Like when you walk through a graveyard, I was in a really old graveyard yesterday. And uh, I was walking around and I was thinking, oh, it's, it's great that all these people are on the right side of history. Oh, it's great that their political and social beliefs are inscribed on their tombstone so that we know they were right. Now, you know what you see on people's tombstones? You see, like, every once in a while you'll see a guitar. You'll, you'll see, like, a, a, a guitar etched into the tombstone, and what that communicates is that's what this guy cared about. doesn't say he was a Democrat or Republican. Yeah, you see crosses, you see Bibles, you see Jesus, you see Mary. You see religious imagery, of course, carved into people's tombstones. You see their faith. But then you also see their little references to their hobbies and interests. Like the, I saw a, a tombstone where a sewing machine was etched in and communicates that she liked to sew. That's what she did. Made me think of my mom because she liked to sew. And uh, I saw, you know, you just see different things. I mean, you'll, sometimes you'll see like a car. Sometimes you'll see like animals. Uh, and you and you see that too with what people put on somebody's grave. Like you'll see little frog figurines. Like someone will put. There was a guy whose tombstone I saw a while back. He looked kind of like Bill Hicks. He had kind of a mullet, like an early '90s mullet, kind of funny expression on his face. And they had his photo embedded into the tombstone, like you see. And somebody had uh, over the years they they put different ceramic and stone frogs next to his tombstone. And what you know is that that guy liked frogs. Like, he, probably as a little kid, he liked the way frogs looked, and he took an interest in frogs. I doubt he was a scientist who studied amphibians. Maybe he was. He didn't cer certainly didn't look like one. He looked like kind of like a party dude from the 80s. He had a mullet, kind of just like a goofy expression on his face. He looked like a fun guy. And then he, he kind of resembled Bill Hicks. And... 
he liked frogs. I know that that guy liked frogs because he died a long time ago and his family still put little stone figurines of frogs, ceramic figurines of frogs at his tombstone. That's what I know about him. That's the right side of history. The right side of history is your love of frogs continuing after you die. Your family relating, not relating to you, but your family commemorating you. Like every, I bet every time that his family sees a frog somewhere, they think of him. And that's amazing. That's what matters, though. When you die, the people are going to remember what you were interested in, what you liked. Little things like that, like the fact that he probably liked frogs. And, and you, know, you don't even know, like, what that meant. You don't even know, does it mean he had a pet frog? You don't know. He might have just liked having frog decorations on his stuff. You don't really know what that means. You just know that he liked frogs in the same way that, like, the guy who had the guitar on his tombstone. Like, we know he liked music. Does it mean he played guitar? I don't know. I don't know if he played guitar, but we know that that guitar is somehow a representation of him. What you don't see on people's tombstones is what they believe. Oh, what were his scientific beliefs? What was his understanding of the world? Yeah, the the ones that reference faith kind of give you an indication of that, or at least what their family thinks. But for the most part, you don't really see any representation, any posthumous representation of somebody that communicates they were on the socio-political right side of history. They were on the right side of science. You don't see that because it doesn't matter. And the proof that it doesn't matter is the fact that in a hundred years, no matter how morally, ethically, scientifically sound you think your thinking is, you will probably look like a fool. Assuming that's what's important to you. Assuming those things are the most important thing to you, which it seems seems to be the case with a lot of people. I, what matters to me most is being on the right side of history, the right side of sociopolitics, the right side of science. <laughs> Good luck, you know, I, I look forward to seeing what your family puts on your tombstone. I look forward to it. I won't be there, but I look, I'm still looking forward to it. <laughs> You know, so that's something to think about. It's something to think about it when you invest in those things. Not that, not that those things aren't important, but those things are the illusion. Like Buddhism talks a lot about how we live in this illusory world and taken to its you know, logical conclusion, that means that everything is truly illusory, including our bodies, which we know our bodies are transient. Everything is transient. You know, that's kind of one of the ideas of recognizing the illusion is that everything comes and goes and because it comes and goes it's an illusion you know if you see when you think of an illusion you think of like something uh, i'm in the desert and i see a castle made out of lights and then it disappeared doesn't matter how soon it disappears doesn't matter whether you interact with it or not something that comes and then goes is an illusion Something temporary. It doesn't mean you can't interact with it. It doesn't, ma- it doesn't mean there isn't some importance to it while you're here. But the fact that things come and things go, including you, makes things somewhat illusory. And your thoughts, your beliefs, 
your reactions, because so many of these things are reactions, these, are, these things are even more of an illusion. Those are an illusion within the illusion. And so something to think about when you think about dying, like what, how do people represent you? How will people represent you? A guitar on your tombstone, a sewing machine, a cross, who knows? Guitars, you know, are a relatively modern invention, I guess. So, you know, who knows what new devices. Your phone, they're going to put, they're going to carve your, your nature phone, your smart nature phone into the tombstone. Maybe. Maybe they'll do that. But, you know, it's, it's very easy to, to focus on these transient things, these illusions, as if somebody's going to remember that. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't do the right thing while you're here. You know, just because I'm saying, oh, it's all an illusion, your sociopolitical beliefs, your scientific understanding of the world, it's an illusion, and time will make a fool of you. History will make a fool of you. Even though I'm saying that, it's not that I don't think you should try to do the right thing while you're here. Just have some perspective, and don't frame it in this historical context. I mean, that's one of the most narcissistic things you can do. That's one of the best examples of contemporary narcissism, is saying, I'm doing this because people in the future are going to look back and say that I did the right thing. Even if you've removed yourself from it, and you just see yourself as a soldier to some larger idea that will have importance in the future. That's still contemporary narcissism, as far as I'm concerned. And I find that when people think in those terms, when people think in, the, in terms of the right side of history, the right side of science, usually the conduct of those people is wanting. Usually the conduct of those people in their personal relationships, in the way that they go out into the world, usually there's something not just wanting, because there's always something wanting, but there's something very wanting, you know, and, and it's not difficult to notice that. So they've committed themselves to these larger ideas that they believe history will look back on fondly, and even if they don't think that they themselves are going to be acknowledged 100 years from now, some people will, few people, very few people. But even if they themselves don't think that as an individual, history will remember them, let alone what they thought about A, B, C, D through Z, they feel that they're committed to an idea that history will look back on fondly. When, uh, you know, that's audacious. It's audacious to frame your life that way. And usually something is wanting in your conduct, in the way that you live your life. And focusing on those larger ideas is often a way to, to get away from those things. You know, when you put all your eggs in that larger basket, you don't have to think about the control you have over the little basket that you carry around with you everywhere you go. And I'm certainly not the first person to point that out. I don't know. I mean, it's, you know, it's, and it's easy to fall into hypocrisy, contradiction. I mean, there's many things that I focus on that somebody could say, you spent your money on that. You spent your time on that. So I'm not trying to tell anybody they shouldn't study the consciousness of crows 
so that we can know what we always intuitively knew and wrote pagan creation stories about. I'm not telling people not to do that. I'm just offering maybe a little counterpoint to it. Because it is the fashion of our time to justify things in a scientific context, to explain them in a scientific context. And I I guess I, I bring all this other stuff up with this in mind because I think it all comes from a similar place. I think the desire to be on the right side of history, the desire to be on the right side of science, the desire to fit yourself to the fashion of the day, it all comes from a very similar place, and it's hard not to. Like, I don't think that, you know, I don't like the language of job interviews, for example, but I also understand that that's how you get a job. And so you can think about life itself, the time in which you live, the time in which you're a human being. You can think of it in those terms. I mean, there are things that you don't like about society, but society requires you on a a fundamental level to think that way or act that way. You don't have to believe it. You don't have to believe it's right. It's like having to dress nice, give a firm handshake, make eye contact, give the right answers in a job interview. It's LARPing. It's phony. But I also know that's what you have to do to get a job. And you don't have to like it, but survival depends on it. So it's like there's, there's many things like that in life, and life itself is that. And that's what a lot of people struggle with is that, oh, life requires me to do things that I don't think are fun or right There are things about life that I want changed, and maybe we can change them. But I don't like what life has presented me with. But in order to keep living life, I have to follow certain rules. I have to live a certain way. I have to breathe air. I don't like the fact that I have to sleep. I mean, if you ask me, I wish that I could get two hours of sleep a night. I wish, I like that there is a disruption that separates days. I don't think sleep is, maybe disruption is the the wrong word, a separation. I like that we have something we have to do that separates days. I like that we don't live in a world where there's just one long, unending day that goes from morning to night and we are just awake all the time. I like that we shut ourselves down or that we are forced to shut down every night. I think that's a good thing that we have this separation. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to talk to you about how we have Thursdays in the land of Tuesdays. I wouldn't be able to talk to you about all this nonsense and this obsession I have about days of the week. It turns out we all have. We are all, we're all obsessed with the day of the week. But I'm glad that we have something that separates days, which is sleep. Sleep is what separates days. Sleep is how we understand different days. And I like that, actually. I just don't like that we have to do it for eight hours to get our full night's sleep. So if you asked me, if I was designing the world, I would say, keep sleep. We're going to keep sleep because we need separation between the days. And it's kind of nice to be able to shut yourself off for a little period of time. Maybe maybe do a little dreaming. This, this, is, what we call doing, this is what we call doing a little dreaming. You know, it's nice that we can do that. However... I would like to do it less and still function, but I know that I can't. I can't argue with that. Yeah, sometimes I can do six hours and still feel okay. 
get below six hours and you start noticing how, how sleep deprived you are. Keep sleep. Keep sleeping. No, but that's that's something I wish. I don't sit around dwelling on. I don't sit around thinking like, God, life sucks because I got to get eight hours of sleep instead of two. And I could do so much more if I had six extra hours in a day to be awake. I don't sit around thinking that. Except right now. I have thought about it. I don't dwell on it. But I know that life requires it. Turns out life requires me to sleep for a certain number of hours. And it's too many, if you ask me. It's too many hours. But I know that I have to do it if I want to function. I know that I have to look my interviewers in the eye at a job interview if I want to get the job. I don't like looking people in the eye. For whatever reason. It's not not even that I don't like it. It's just not natural to me. When I'm thinking, if I'm talking, it's like it distracts me. To me, looking someone in the eye distracts me from the essence of my thoughts. But I also know in certain situations you have to. And I could go on about eye contact. That's a whole other tangent I'm sure has been addressed on here. But it's real quick, I'll say it. It's funny to me that people have such a problem with a lack of eye contact. And they're like, when you don't make eye contact, people think that you're lying. They think that you're shifty. They think that you're going to steal from them. It's like, you know I'm not a liar. You know I'm not a thief. Just give me my lack of eye contact. Like, just give me that. But I also know we live in a world where that requires eye contact. I mean, I've learned that especially having a dog where eye contact is extremely important. And a lot of our communication, like a lot of my communication with Batty comes in the form of eye contact, which again is, is us relating. We relate to creatures who have eyes, and they intuitively know to look us in the eye. Even though it doesn't really matter when it comes to my physical presence and what I'm doing, Batty knows, watch my eyes. Look at his eyes. We know that about other people. Look at their eyes. And maybe I don't like to look people in the eye because I'm, I want to protect my eyes. I want to protect my soul. But I have learned the importance of it, especially in having a dog, where it's very important that I look him in the eye. And I don't have a choice. He's going to find my eyes one way or another. If you have a dog, you know, especially a, at least this breed of Chihuahua, you know, Chihuahua, you know that he's going to find your eyes and he's going to look at them. <laughs> you know, I got to wear sunglasses. I got to cover my head. And even then he's going to be looking toward where my eyes are. Something he just knows. Um, but uh, we live in a world that requires certain things of us. And we don't have to like them all. Because some of them we just don't have a choice. But we do have a certain flexibility. We do have certain freedom. And we can recognize that certain things are temporary, certain things are something of an illusion. And the fashion of the day is often an illusion because it comes and goes. Doesn't mean you don't have to adapt to it while it's here. You know, I don't dislike the scientific process, which I'll say again and again. I don't like I don't dislike the, because the scientific process isn't just the scientific process. You know, the scientific process is, is a process that relates to virtually everything we do. Whether we call it that or not. I mean, science itself is a placeholder term. 
as everything is. But I think people have forgotten that, or they've never, they've never realized that. They see the institution itself as something that is always here. Because that process plays out so universally, I mean, it's like somebody starting a fire for the first time. It's like somebody who learned how to rub two sticks together. Science. I can guarantee you that the caveman who learned how to do that was not thinking that. That's a process that could be viewed in scientific terms. Oh, the friction between the sticks uh, created heat, and uh, the heat allowed you to, you're you're able to turn the heat into a spark that uh, lit the dried grass on fire, and we can explain that scientifically. But that explanation is not the thing that is actually happening. Is not the whole of that process. That caveman is not a scientist. That caveman is not a scientist. It's important to remember that. But you can view it that way. You can you can look at that and be like he. You could also say he's an artist. And you can look at the the first caveman to learn that he can manually start a fire. He's just as much an artist as he is a scientist, as he is a caveman, as he is anything. And so you can use whatever placeholder word you want to understand what he is doing. Because I can guarantee you that people stared at that fire he started like it was a work of art. Because fire is a work of art. But uh, to say that it's... Oh, it's the scientific process. Yeah, you can explain it scientifically. You can more appropriately describe it. You can describe what's going on with the sticks. But to think that that's actually the thing, to think that's the whole of it, is the wrong way to look at it. And I will, and I do think it's the wrong way to look at it. All right, maybe not the maybe not the wrong way to look at it. The wrong way to get caught up in it. Just like I think taking this like reductionist mindset to crows we're gonna we're gonna break down every little thing that's going on in their minds all the neurons in the crow's brain is firing this way therefore we know that it's experiencing reflective thought the crow is thinking about getting drunk the the crow is thinking about how he has to attend the crow meeting the annual crow meeting in a giant field oh he's thinking about the fact that he just left a crow funeral where he and his fellow crows stood on a telephone wire and looked down at a dead crow and made noise because they were acknowledging death, which is what a funeral is. And, you know, we can break down a, a crow's mind, sure. You can break it down so that you can publish an article about it. But in the end, you're just telling people something that they already intuitively knew about crows because people are smart and they are aware. People are aware, therefore they're smart. Therefore, they can gain insight from simply observing things. And work that into their early stories, their tribal stories. They don't actually require any more than that. Which, interestingly, is what science is. It's observation, and it's a description of observation. And then you throw in a little bit of manipulation. And that's kind of where things get tricky with science, is just that you can be a scientist who simply observes and describes. Darwinian. You know, is Darwin. I'm going to observe what's happening here. He probably did a little manipulation too. But uh, 
I think where things get tricky is that science leads us to manipulate our environment. And then when we manipulate it in a way that is destructive, we go, oh, we need science to help us. And it's like this protection racket where it's like, oh, it was science that led us to manipulating our environment. And the manipulation ended up being used in a destructive way, in a detrimental way. And now we need the same thing to save us. How about if we just don't manipulate it at all? And that's impossible. Yeah, I know that's impossible, but still, it's a thought. Like I, I've always had this thought since I was a kid where I was like, we know we're just going to not mess with things for a while. Like things are great right now, you know, as far as like our ability to protect ourselves from the environment, from environmental hazards, to protect us from ourselves from dangerous animals, our ability to acquire food. You know, things are relatively great. Let's try not messing with anything for a while. It doesn't mean we shouldn't apply ourselves creatively. I know humans have to mess with something. But it's like, let's not mess with the foundations of our reality for a while. Let's not mess with everything for a while. If something comes up, let's deal with it as it comes. But let's not deliberately try to mess with the foundations of our natural reality for a while. Because what that is, like, like, you know... It's like constantly rearranging your room. It's like you live with somebody. This is what it's like. This is what scientists are like. It's like living with somebody who's like constantly moving something over here. They're constantly rearranging the furniture. They're constantly taking the silverware and putting it in a different drawer. That's kind of how it feels to be in a scientific world. When science is the fashion of the day which it's been a long day of that. I think we need a little sleep, actually. I think we've had a long day of science, and we could use a little nap, a little separation between the days, maybe focus on something else tomorrow. But it's a lot like living with somebody who's constantly rearranging things. And sometimes it's something small. Sometimes it's, oh, let's, let's move the forks out of the silverware drawer and put them in this drawer. And they have some sort of explanation. Oh, that, that drawer is closer to this, and th- therefore, blah, blah. Let's, let's put the silver, let's, let's put each, each type of silverware in a different drawer and see what happens. This will be the fork drawer. This will be the, the, the spoon drawer. And let's move this over here and just see what happens. You know, it's kind of what it feels like to live in a time when science is the fashion of the day. It is just that somebody's constantly rearranging everything in your house. Sometimes it's something small, something, sometimes it's something big. Sometimes they rearrange something small that has much larger implications. Sometimes they do something that causes you to lose electricity. And you're like, hey, you know, that experiment caused us all to lose electricity. And they're like, yeah, but you need me to turn the electricity back on. And it's like, yeah, but you caused the problem. It was because you were messing with things that we lost electricity. So why do you even need to mess with things to begin with? Because I got to do something. And that's sort of the dilemma is I've got to do something. So let's mess with things. But it's been a long day. I feel like the, the day of science has been a long one. And I wouldn't mind a little bit of sleep. And I wouldn't mind a different fashion of the day in my lifetime. But we'll see how that goes. 
Just remember that we learned that crows think. Wait until the fashion of the day changes, and we'll see what else we have to say about crows. But for now, just a couple hours sleep. Let's start a new day. We can use what we already know. It's not like everything we've learned is useless. You know, we've learned a lot of valuable information. But let's start a new day is how I'm feeling. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free. 